Hi, I'm Wadeen Koenig-Bricker. I'm an editor and author, a studier of life, a lover of cats in Egypt. And today on Curiosity Bites, we're going to be talking about Egyptology and icons and saints because of my new book, Dinner Party with the Saints. But we're also going to be talking about words and how words matter and about how your life is changed by the words you use. And we're going to touch upon current events and probably a few other things as well, like foods that might have been interesting in ancient times. Join us, stay tuned. Welcome back to our final part of this delicious episode of Curiosity Bites with Woodine Koenig-Bricker. She is the author of somewhere between 13 plus books and she's those are her own. She's written many others for other people. She's edits for magazines. She's written hundreds of articles for newspapers and magazines. She's a highly respected Catholic historian and an Egyptologist. And she is also my editor and an amazing human being and a dear friend. And we also want to mention that we are grateful that this episode of Curiosity Brights is brought to you in part by MagCast, M-A-G-C-A-S-T. Imagine having your own industry magazine. What would that do for your authority? Whether you are a coach or a content expert or an emerging brand, it's hard to stand out from the crowd. So what if there was a proven way to increase both your perceived authority and your professional status in the eyes of your market? Well, this is your way to going from being invisible to getting meetings with anyone. To find out more, you can simply go to magcast.co. That's M-A-G-C-A-S-T dot C-O where first-time publishers create thriving magazine businesses. Again, magcast.co. Let's dive in. We were talk we've been talking about Egyptology. We've been talking about dinner with the saints. We've been talking about the illusions of who the saints are or were and, um, and the misconceptions we have around these people and the compartmentalizing of them separate from history and separate from their humanity. And now we're going to go back into a little bit further because I really wanted to explore the idea of writing. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting because we started out by uh, speaking about writing being in, in pictures. We talked about, you know, uh, hieroglyphics and we talked about those kinds of things and, and that icons were uh, read rather than seen uh, or viewed. And so I'm really interested in how you became a writer. And I, I know you and I have talked about this privately before, but I, th I think there's some pretty interesting stuff in there because, well, let's start with, when did you start having the sense that you wanted to be a writer and how was that received in your family of origin? I don't think I ever wanted to be a writer. No? I don't think being a writer was ever a goal. Um, what I have come to learn, partially because of, of a lot of our discussions too, of mm -hmm. learned through that, is that I am not motivated by mastery. I'm motivated by curiosity. Right. And so 
I'm good with being, you know, 80% good. And if I learn something 80% of the way, I don't feel any need to go the other 20% to become a master at it. I just want to know enough about it to understand how it works. Um, so for instance, I'm a certified scuba diver, but I never took up scuba diving as a hobby. I wanted to know what it was like to dive. I wanted to know what it was like the process. And once I did that and dove, you know, several times, then it was, I needed to make it my lifelong hobby. Right. So very early on, I realized that one career that allowed you to investigate anything you wanted to do was journalism. Mm -hmm. You could ask every question you want and poke your nose into every place you wanted as a journalist mm -hmm. because you could go there and you could ask the questions and you could have access to the people. And so I decided to go into journalism because of my curiosity and the writing just sort of was the product of that. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think that I would have been suited to academia uh, a two, I think, is that that investigating as a as a teacher or or yes. something on a on a uh, secondary or tertiary level would have probably been another career option for me, but it was really the I just liked finding out. I liked having the ability to go in and ask people questions, and I liked to, so becoming a writer um, was never truly the goal. The goal was a personal, I want to find out. So as, I mean, again, motivated, you know, you and I have talked a lot about this. Being motivated by curiosity. Okay, I get that journalism, perfect for that. You know, it's like, okay, and particularly because it could be widespread, you could ask about all kinds of things. But you became a journalist, certainly uh, as time went on, it uh, particularly directed around Catholicism. So, you know, your writing became around Catholicism. So how did the idea of journalism fit with your Catholic background and that doctrine and family and how that, you know, uh, was that seen as uh, some kind of blasphemery <laughs> that you might, cause, cause for instance, as you know, my wife was brought up um, hardcore Christian and she got herself in a lot of trouble by asking questions <laughs> like, well, this doesn't make sense. What about that? And she was teaching Sunday school, at, you know, as a, as a teenager and asking questions and they didn't like that. So as a journalist, it is your job to ask questions and inside of the doctrine, I'm guessing that that's less encouraged. So talk to us about that seeming, seeming may not be true, seeming misconnect or disconnect. Well, you know, the only reason I actually fell into writing mostly about Catholicism was one of those chance encounters that often changes your life. Mm -hmm. And to uh, show up at a, uh, I guess a speech, I'm not sure. There, there were uh, three women who were murdered in Guatemala, I think. Anyway, mm -hmm. they're, 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 uh, they were Christian missionaries, Catholic missionaries. And the person who was giving, this was a long time ago. I mean, this was like when I was in my twenties, um, who was giving the talk said, well, there's no one here who could ever write an article about these women. I thought, yes, I could. 
I could. <laughs> and so that's kind of, so I wrote an article about them. And that's kind of how I just was pulled into, it was published in a Catholic publish, publishing place. And that's kind of how I got pulled into it. Um, were you already a journalist at that point? I was. Right. I so was. what kind of journalism were you doing before? Um, I wrote articles about mothering and motherhood and and for parenting magazines and um you know child development and i also was a i was a copywriter um, for an ad agency and so i did marketing copy and i did that kind of that kind of writing um when i worked exclusively in the catholic press um which i did for several years i just I'll just be right up front with you. I learned to just keep my mouth shut. Mm. A lot of people do, you know, that I just didn't express the questions out loud because they weren't things that were going to be acceptable. Um, as is often the case when you work in a structured organization that has certain, I mean, I think that I often joke and I think I think that my colleagues often thought that I was a, a bona fide heretic, but I never said anything that they could prove it. <laughs> so you know, you, you keep you keep from being burned at the stake by not opening your mouth. Um, but most of what I wrote, actually, um, I was the editor of a magazine called Catholic Parent. And so most of what I wrote was about parenting. So I wrote about parenting and I wrote about psychology and I wrote about, you know, so I didn't always choose to write about the dogma. I, I right. kind of skirted those issues. I let someone else deal with that because that just wasn't some place that I really always felt that I could go. And so I sort of threaded the needle in that way that I wrote a lot about um, religion as history. I wrote a lot about religion as news. Um, I interviewed a lot of people about their religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. um, I remember one of the one of my favorite interviews was with Anne Rice um, of Empire with a uh, you know, interview with the vampire. And yeah. so I, I wrote I wrote about people and their uh, faith journeys and could ask the questions that I dealt with by asking them the questions. But I, I compartmentalized. So did you did you interview Anne Rice, who interviewed with a vampire, very famous, hugely famous books. Um, did you interview her while you were with the Catholic Press? I did. For the Catholic Press? I did. Because in many ways, the the whole trope of, of vampire is anti, you know, so... It, what was the impetus to 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 write like was that something you were given and then you what, what was the impetus for that because that's fascinating she had written a book called uh out of egypt which was about a fictionalized account about jesus uh which is not one of her better known works and so i interviewed say to her and asked just those questions i thought i said why why if you write about vampires and you know all of this why would you write about you know jesus and why would you do this and and she basically uh, at the time was exploring her catholic roots oh. catholic new orleans where she and and what catholicism meant and how it influenced her so her her book was a 
as I understood it was an outgrowth of her own exploring of her of her past. And so, you know, I I had an opportunity to talk with her. She was a fascinating individual. Um, I was going to say, what was she like as a human? Um, very gracious, um, very articulate, um, very. I would say introspective, mm -hmm. and not not really, and, and and a woman who was deeply in love with her husband, which we don't always know. I mean, Stan Rice, her her husband, was her great, um, was the man behind her at all times, and so she gave a lot of of um, homage to him. But I had the opportunity to interview a number of interesting people because I would convince the editors above me that there could be some kind of a of a, uh, a religious or Catholic twist to it. So I interviewed the uh, creator of Dennis the Menace, for instance, and asked him about his, you know, background and his religious beliefs and, and asked him about how he, how his character of Dennis uh, reflected his own childhood. And so, you know, a lot of, of what I did as a Catholic journalist was to take a subject that I was really interested in and find an angle. <laughs> how fabulous. Who else did you interview that was really like, you know, really impacted you? I mean, they may, may or may not have been famous people like Anne Rice or the uh, creator of Dennis the Menace, but somebody who you was like really impactful for you uh, as a human being or impacted even your writing style. Um, I worked with a priest. Um, his name is Father Mitch Pacwa, who's a very traditionalist, very conservative priest and helped him with some of his books. And he, he probably would not be thrilled to learn how he influenced me, but, <laughs> but um, in the course of conversation with him as we were working on one of his books, he was telling me some of the language that was used in scripture and how we get it wrong. Mm. And that set me off down a whole path of saying, what else have we gotten wrong? For instance, uh, Paul, the Apostle St. Paul, in one of his famous lines says, I have a thorn in my side that will not be removed. Mm -hmm. And I think your, your Christian um, listeners will be familiar with that. And we often hear this with thorn in our side. Well, Father Paco said to me, the word thorn isn't exactly what it is. It actually is another word for tent post. And it was it's a word that was used for the posts that would hold down the tents in the desert. So it's not a little pricky thing that's bothering him. It's something major. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a big deal for him. And I thought, this changes everything. And so Father Paco had a few other of those examples along the way that I can't instantly think of, but that were words that I had known all my life and that they were not what I thought they meant. And so that sent me, that did send me down a whole nother path. That, that did influence me um, a great deal. Um, but you're, you're, you're a great, you know, it's one of the things I do love about our conversations is that you're, you're, you have a great curiosity of language and 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 you know uh there are things like thorn in my side which has become it's just part of the the, the modern lexicon of language um 
that don't mean what they were said. You know, you and I, um, I had talked to you about what I had learned from, uh, from my studies um, around, you know, people think that things were, you know, English and, and, oh, they were Hebrew first and then they became English. And we talked about all the different translations in between and that Hebrew is not the original language, uh, you know, right. the Weta Aramaic and the words are wrong. And we look at the word humble and you and I had these great conversations about that. When you look at those words that, you know, even that that guy had explained to you around thorn, has that changed so much for you? Does it, does it give you that looking at a word and going, yeah, you tricky little bugger. I know it's not that. It does. It does. And it changes. Words change everything. Mm -hmm. And we only perceive our world through the words we use. Yeah. And here's a, an example that really, really changed my life. Um, in Christian theology, they talk about the Holy Spirit. Yes. And the Holy Spirit is always referred to as masculine. I've always thought that, you know, God is referred to in Christianity as, as an old man, a young man, and a bird. And that somehow, somehow, if you're thinking about the inevitable divine and, and your only images are of an old man, young man, a bird, you're kind of limiting yourself there to... Well, it's going to make procreation a bit difficult. It's going to make procreation a bit difficult. Well, the etymology of the word, the word for spirit, we have to back up a little bit. You know, in, in languages other than English, words have, um, are masculine or feminine or neuter. Yes. So in Spanish and French and all of that, you know, you have, have they yep. carry that connotation with them. Well, the word for spirit is feminine. Mm -hmm. And so in, in, in the ancient, in ancient Hebrew, well, when Jerome translated the Bible into Latin, he used the word spiritus, which is masculine. Mm -hmm. So the Holy Spirit got its feminine energy translated into masculine energy simply by the use of the word. Right. And so once we changed Ra to Spiritus, we get a visceral sensation of masculinity that wasn't inherent. And so, yes, when you understand the word and the etymology of the word, um, it changes everything. And I think that's why in the Christian scriptures and the, the, the uh, Gospel of John begins, in the beginning was the word. Because yes. the word, you know, we, we, we speak truth through the words we use. And words have incredible power. And we need to be careful with our words. Just like that man who said to me, you know, you'll never be able to write. All you can do is be a, a letter carrier. His words had incredible power. And that's true in a theological sense. It's true in a metaphysical sense. And it's true in an emotional sense as well. And I also believe it's true in a physical sense. I think if we tell ourselves we can't do something, we can't. And if we tell ourselves we can, we can. Mm -hmm. The word has power. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it's, you know, it's fascinating for me, for looking at you as a, as a journalist um, and as a writer and then the etymology and then I, I add to that then, you know, the Catholic uh, history and the Egyptian history 
because oftentimes these words, and again, we've gone full circle because, you know, before there was words, there was pictures, you know, and so, you know, you talked about uh, uh, a king who would have been in his 40s who was pictured as, um, you know, a young man in the image and he's smaller than the other guy. And, you know, so we look at the thing around, and again, we can get into areas we're not going to go into today, but, you know, the areas of giants in the Bible, right? right? Uh, um, and we look at the hieroglyphs and we can see there are giants in the hieroglyphs. But are they giants or are they representations of power and influence? Um, you know, and again, we're not, we're not discussing that right now, but it's, it, it's again these, I, I'm fascinated by the lost meaning of words or the overlaying of meaning of words um, and what things mean and what how it cre also creates uh, moral codes around, you know, so you talked about St. Augustine and, and the moral codes, but it also is in all of those. I mean, so there's a great thing that I, I watched something this week as we're recording this, which I'm sure that most of our listeners also know something about even if they didn't watch it and that was that megan and harry as in the royals um who walked away from or not backed away from the royal family um and they did not they did an interview with oprah right. and in that discussion there was a discussion about supposedly again i don't know i wasn't there but supposedly somebody or some member of the royals had made a statement that uh uh, Harry and Meghan's uh, child might not have fair skin, and they were concerned about that. And I thought, okay, that's racism. But what I found is the irony for me is, hold on a second, let's just pause and look at royal families, not just the British royal family, but royal families all the way back for as long as history dictates, they were ancestral. <laughs> Many of them were, yes. Many of them were, were you know, uh, Egyptians married their sisters and, and you know, um, many of kings throughout history married siblings and, you know, all that kind of stuff went on. Cleopatra was married to her brother. You know, people showing up with a bit of a darker skin versus six fingers or a wobbly eye or... <laughs> The brain not functioning or being sterile, as you mentioned earlier, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? When you look at all of that and how we, again, compartmentalize. And so, the, you know, oh, we have to be the whitest of white. Yeah, you know, do you know that you're not? That even Prince Philip, the Queen's husband, is Greek? Right. They're not white people. Greeks are not white people. Right. Well, there, there's how we how we see race is you know is a whole is a discussion for a whole nother another topic and another thing but um you know in ancient egypt skin color was not the criteria for being egyptian or not there were there's a sort of a retrofitting of history that yep. trying to make all of the ancient Egyptian pharaohs black and they weren't there were some that were very white and there were some that were people of color of you know like Arab 
kind of ancestry. And then there were blacks, there were black Nubian pharaohs. So it, it, it has to do with the culture that they came from, not from their skin color. And we in the West- well, Cleopatra was, not, uh, was uh, from- uh, Macedonia. Macedonia, which is, which is a white, more white at least, yeah, she right. was she was she was white, and and there are some pharaohs that appear to have had their genetic code seems to indicate that they had red hair, and you know, fair yeah. skin. and it's it, it so race is one of those constructs that we we place too much emphasis on, and we assume that the ancients did the same, mm-hmm. and they did not. Uh, they had a different viewpoints were different from from that time period just like i said to you that that you know augustine was a man of color mm-hmm. you know and people don't I, there's a there's a famous two famous pictures of uh, augustine and his mother that i've seen pictures of saints and augustine is you know just absolutely lily 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 white and somebody knew that his mother was a berber and so she's dark skinned and it's like yeah right where did this lily white augustine come from if you knew his mother was was a woman of color it's just not gonna work so uh, yeah uh, and the words we use you know when you when you come back to the words and i think that's um, we don't think about the words we use often enough mm-hmm. and i don't just mean in it you know casual speaking out of turn but when you use a word um, not to get too new age metaphysical about it but when you use a word what is it that you're calling into being mm-hmm. because you know the scripture says in the word beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and you know the, the spoken word became god well okay so if the word became god then words create words have creative possibilities and that we need to guard ourselves um one place in scripture says take every thought captive and that's very true because as soon as your thoughts become words and your words become come out into the world then you start creating or manifesting or whatever word you want to use bringing about that which you are speaking of so words are powerful yeah and and on top of that you when you speak you relay a perception and if you are a person of influence in any way shape or form meaning you might be an elder sibling uh or you may be a a lord um but you you project perception into the world and when you project perception and you are a person of influence uh, that changes the world, you know. I mean, there's, it was uh, a certain thing that went on on January the 6th of 2021 um, in the U.S. Capitol that is a result of words, right? Um, and the debate was whose words and how much influence. Well, the bottom line is there was a clear manifestation of words having an impact on people who are now many of whom are saying well we just listened to the words and we went we went ahead and 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 we sacked the 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 congress you know, so it's definitely the words have power and so when you come to all of this you know so now we look back and we're going back 
all the books you've written, the most recent book, Dinner with Saints. Um, we've looked at Egyptology, uh, the iconism of, of Egyptology and Christianity, uh, you're stepping into journalism uh, to feed your curiosity. Is it curiosity that's the common theme for you? Absolutely. It seems to be. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Uh, I don't think that I articulated that clearly until I became much older. I didn't realize that that was my, um, my motivating underlying reason, raison d'etre, um, but it has been. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, you know, as a little girl, I wanted to crack open rocks to see what was inside them. And I, you know, I, it, it, it was, it's always been this sense of curiosity. And you helped me with this a lot. I mean, I, we put such an emphasis on mastery in our culture that those of us who are motivated by curiosity and once our curiosity is satisfied are willing to go on to something else are kind of seen as dilettantes or kind of seen as, you know, just someone who doesn't have the ability to focus or doesn't have the ability to, uh, you know, really knuckle down and do what, what it takes. And in our conversations, you know, you've really helped me come to realize that, no, that's just a this is just a different way of approaching the world. There are people for whom mastery is important and then there are people for whom the investigatory process and the satisfaction of curiosity are in and of itself the end. Yes. And that it's okay. It's okay to be the kind of person who says the process and the journey is the destination. Right. And as a as a as a a child with that curiosity um, in your family, how was that received? Did you grow up in a family of, of curious people or not so much? No, I didn't grow up in a family of curious people. I grew up in a family of of uh, of troubled people as many people do and so i think that's why my curiosity was often um intellectually driven so i mean i read the book black like me when i was about seven years old because it was sitting on somebody's coffee table you know and i'm and now i think okay it but my parents you know who are not particularly curious in that sense probably didn't even know that I read it you know so a lot of my curiosity was probably done in secret uh, you know that nobody nobody ever I mean I went to the library and took out whatever books I want nobody ever looked at whatever books I took I mean it could have been reading Portnoy's complaint and nobody would have known <laughs> so I no, I don't think that 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 kind of curiosity I came from a family of artistic people and and people you know who had work with their hands engineers and but not somebody who's had particular curiosity I don't think yeah I just I, I you know I wonder if your curiosity was um, almost heretic inside of the environment that's what I just I'm not saying it was I'm asking 
Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure had I ever expressed it, it would have been. I mean, I can remember the Catholic Church says that there are seven sacraments, and I can distinctly remember the day that I remember thinking, no, they don't. They have six sacraments for girls and seven for men, you know, because women can't become priests. And I thought, no, there aren't seven sacraments. There are six and a plus. You know, but that's not something that when you're in Catholic school that you say, excuse me, sister, but there's only six, you know, right. you just, you don't exactly say those things. So those kind of things, I, you know, as I said, I distinctly remember that day thinking, hmm. And, you know, people sometimes ask, you know, how do you reconcile your Catholic faith with these kind of things? And the best answer I can give you is that I grew up within a Catholic tradition. I had yes. an Irish Catholic mother, and I grew up within this tradition. And for me, the easiest, the most familiar, and the most comfortable path to intersecting with the divine is through the um, framework of Catholicism. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean that I accept everything that it has, but there is a a level of through the rituals that because I think people we we need ritual we desire ritual as people through the rituals that have been instilled in me through a lifetime through the the repetition of the calendar and the the you know that you know Catholics have their calendar just like Jewish people and, and mm -hmm. Muslims have their calendar and so you know when Ramadan comes around or when the high holy days come around or when Easter comes around if that's part of your religious tradition there's a certain level of of functionality that allows you to examine without always questioning because you are able to enter into the ritualistic aspects of that and so for me catholicism has been that path mm. it's been like the the road um, i don't i don't it's not the only road it's, right. the road, it's the road that makes sense to me because of who I am and where I came from and how much I've studied and where, where it comes from. But it's a path. It's, it's a, a means. But I mean, again, it's exactly what you've been saying all along, even in the context of the saints, is there is a context to every human being, and the context is where they are planted in time and in environment. And so as you talked about with these saints, having a singular laser focus on their spiritual path inside of the context of the Catholic faith, if they'd have been born somewhere else in another situation, they'd have probably, you know, maybe they, if they were born in Tibet, for instance, maybe they'd have become Buddhist. Yes, you know, exactly. You're not saying that it's it it's not exclusively the right way it was the right way for that person at that time as as you've just said about yourself and very often i think it's the only way mm -hmm. uh, because you know and, and then we can get all into you know missionaries and you know trying to conversions and all of those things which is a whole nother topic but you are born into a you're born into a, a family of origin. You're born in with a certain set of DNA, with a certain set of profiles, and you're born into a a culture which includes your spirituality. And unless you pull yourself out of that, that's going to be the way you see the world. And 
that simply is okay. It's all right to see the world that way because not to see it exclusively that way, but to live within that because we can't live untethered. No. Uh, we, we have to tether ourselves to something. Right. And, well, the word religion coming from the word religio, which is to bind yourself to. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, we find faith because we, we, we need to bind ourselves to something. We need to tether ourselves to something that gives us an anchor. We're at the end of the show, and, and I want to do two things. I want to sort of get a final message from you. But before I do that, I want to make sure that people can find you uh, and find out about the book and where they can go. Can you tell us how people can find you, find out about what you do, and, of course, about the, this new book and any of your books? Woodin.com. That's, that's, that's <laughs> very complicated. <laughs> Uh, and you know they can email me email me at wadeen at gmail.com um, as far as i know there may be someone out there and maybe as a result of this they will tell me but i've never actually ever met anyone with my name with my spelling i know somebody who's had a similar spelling but i've never met anybody with my name so i was very able to do just wadeen.com okay and Good. Do one, one single name and they can find out about me on the website there and they can um, find out about the book there as well they can find out about the book yes Okay, good. So you can find out about that book. And there's some, I believe there's some video interviews as well. Yeah, there's and, some video interviews. Yeah, and there's they all can find me on Facebook. They can find me yeah. on Facebook, Wadeen too. Just there on Facebook is Wadeen. Um, you asked, you said what, what would be a final message? Yes. Um, I think I would say to people, Don't accept everything at face value. Mm. And be willing to place yourself in an uncomfortable position, in an uncomfortable place, in order to look at what you really believe. But in the end, as I said earlier, in the end, the fundamental question is not what do I believe or what does somebody else believe or the fundamental question is, am I loving? And that, that when you ask that question, in every situation, sometimes the answer, the loving answer is not the easiest or obvious one, nor is it the answer that we think we should have. And I think for instance, the, the best example that I can give for people is if you have a pet that you dearly, dearly love, your beloved animal, and they are suffering, the most loving thing to do is to let them go. Mm -hmm. And that's the hardest thing to do. Yeah, as, somebody who's, as somebody who's set, who's had to let go of a beloved cat, I'm a cat fancier, you know, and, you know, a cat that I just loved with my whole heart and when the time came to let the cat go it was excruciatingly difficult but it was also the loving thing to do mm -hmm. yeah i think we've lost sight of that a lot in our society right? the loving thing the loving thing is often the hard thing yeah, the loving thing is the hard thing yeah that's brilliant thank you 
It has been a pleasure. It's been so fun. Honor. Thank you again for taking the time. I know that people are going to love this. And for you, dear listener, I really hope that you found today's show extremely valuable. I know I have. I've loved this conversation. Hope it's opened up your eyes to uh, not just saints, but the way that we look at things and the way we compartmentalize things inside and outside of history and whether the history is real or false. And, and, and maybe it's even given you a way to become curious about your own thoughts around uh, and your own beliefs around spirituality um, in the context of your environment, how you grew up, and maybe the way that you've framed or not framed other individuals. It's been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much, Wadeen. I really appreciate it. It has been my pleasure and my honor, and, and you have my love and my gratitude. Always a pleasure. I love talking to you. Thank you so much. And for you, dear listener, remember that you can join in the conversation uh, of any of our Curiosity Bites by going to Curiosity Bites on Facebook. There's a group there. You can We post these shows in there as well as on the usual outlets. And of course, we always need your help in keeping relevant. So please do us a favor, rate, review, subscribe to the show and share it with other people. Listen, don't hoard it. This is cool stuff. Get it out there. Till next time, stay curious, my friends. Stay curious.